from Fresh Air Studios in Plymouth, this is In Conversation With, the podcast from Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. With special guests, Richard Stevens of Plymouth City Bus. I call myself the YTS of the Deputy Lieutenants because, you know, I feel so humbled to be in the role. And Alexis Bowater of Bowater Communications. When I admitted age 15 to my careers advisor at school that I wanted to be a journalist in a newspaper newsroom, he said, you can't do that, it's a boy's job. Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce. Welcome to another In Conversation With podcast. And this time I'm joined by Richard Stevens, who is, I should confess, he's my chair of the chamber, so I'm actually sort of interviewing my boss, which is a bit weird. But Richard also does a whole load of other stuff. As I'm going to start, actually, Richard, you sit on a lot of boards. Firstly, what are you on? Not as in what are you on drugs, I mean what are you on in terms of boards? A lot of people have to put up with me. I guess in no particular order, yes, I chair the Chamber of Commerce and the Plymouth Area Business Council, but also Plymouth's Growth Board. And I sit on One Plymouth, Our Plymouth, the Devonport Task Force. I'm a director of Destination Plymouth and I chair the Marine Tech Expo for the city. I'm chair of Governors for All Saints Academy I'm a trustee for Street Factory Charity. I'm a Heart of the Southwest LEP board member and I chair the business leadership group for the LEP. I also deputy chair the strategic investment panel and the finance and risk for the LEP. And then I also have the honour of being one of the Deputy Lord Lieutenants of Devon. And I sit on the Young Persons Group for the Lord Lieutenant and the Business Group for the Lord Lieutenant. So I think that pretty much covers most of it. And somehow in amongst all that, you have time to run a bus company. Yes, indeed. Yeah, Plymouth City Bus. Of which you are managing director. And City Bus has had an incredible last couple of years. I mean, you've got the Queen's Award. And tell us about the contract you won. It's a massive contract win. Yeah, we've been delighted. I mean, (laughs) COVID aside, 2020 really has been a good year for our company. You know, we've been pursuing a strategy of growth for a number of years now. And we were delighted to be awarded probably the largest single deregulated bus contract that's ever been let for Cornwall Council to run buses in the county, which they told us we'd won in January. 29th of March, we were due to mobilise 140 buses, 350 people across 12 sites, just as COVID hit. And I'm pleased to say the team all pulled together. They've done an amazing job. And here we are months later, and the contract's fully mobilised. We've effectively doubled the size of Plymouth City Bus. It's now a £47 million turnover business, employing 850 people, 300 buses, carrying around 25 million passenger journeys a year, which is pretty cool. That is very cool. How did you manage to pull that off overnight? It's doubling the company. Yeah, I mean, it was a longer journey than that. I think for me, it's all about relationships. You know, that's why I do so many boards and committees and things like that is that for me, good business is about being a good community partner. And so you lay the groundwork of relationships over time. You can't just waltz into town, you know, stamp your feet and then expect everything to be handed to you on a plate. And this is such a great city, Devon and Cornwall, such great counties. I think you have to be part of it and you have to live it and you have to love it. And the work that we did to set our stall out for the Cornwall contract or even the right to be here in Plymouth, it's not a given right. You have to work at it, and I think it's about collaboration. So although we mobilised pretty much overnight, the foundations of that started back in 2015 when we sat down to talk to Cornwall in the first instance. Wow. I mean, that's some journey. 
The longest bus journey you've ever done? I have had the pleasure of driving what was Europe's longest coach service, which was Penzance to Perth in Scotland, the 806 service back in the early 90s. Sadly, that particular route doesn't exist anymore, and you couldn't do it in one hit. It was staged through various drivers. But yeah, that's possibly the longest coach trip I've ever done, although the longest bus journey I've ever driven. I took a double-decker bus to Romania in the early 90s after the revolution there on an aid mission and that thing was loaded up with nearly 40 tonnes of aid 40 tonnes total weight minus the vehicle weight and it had a top speed of about 23 miles an hour and then I drove that overland to Romania and then stayed out there for about eight weeks delivering aid across northern Romania around Cluj and the Transylvanian mountains one of the most humbling experiences of my life And then I left it there and it carried on doing work and then eventually ended up being a worker's canteen in a dockyard. And at the end of my stint there, I hitchhiked home, which is also the longest hitchhike I've ever done as well, as I left all my clothes and possessions with the people I was staying with and my money and just hitchhiked back to the UK. So that was an incredible journey. And as you said, it must have been incredibly humbling that time in Romania. Yeah, it was. I mean, I was quite young at the time. And, you know, you see the imagery on the television. And I think as I drove down through Europe towards Romania, you didn't really notice the difference between, you know, the deprivation that you saw on the telly. But having spent time there and then coming back, I think that's where the impact really hit me the most. Mm. And, you know, it, it just made me want to lead a better life, I think, to be honest. And it's delightful, you know, because one of the great things now about how it's all come on is I meet people in this country from Romania And that country is doing so much better now. And I think they should be really proud. The ingenuity of the people and the work ethic was just incredible. And their resilience. And there was so much to admire. So, yeah, it was a good experience for me. Yeah. And you mentioned that you drove the bus. So you still drive buses now, don't you? Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's one of my favourite things to do. I mean, I've actually done shifts through COVID, a couple in Cornwall and one up here in Plymouth. I think it's really important to stay in touch. And it's one of the challenges that sort of working from home has presented for everybody is how do you be a leader if you're not visible? And, you know, one of the great things for me is still being able to drive my own buses. So, yeah, it's good fun. Good toys to play with. It is. And it also keeps you grounded because, you know, you're sort of on the bus. And I was doing a trip earlier this year and I got slightly confused and I just turned back and I just asked the passengers, did I turn left there? And a voice from the back of the bus shouts, ha, see, even the MD doesn't know where he's going. (laughs) Thanks. And I'm like, yeah, okay, thank you very much. But I think people appreciate seeing you out there. I know that my team do. But I think also the passengers get it. And I spend my life being sort of challenged as the bus guy in Plymouth, you Mm. know, and people normally are quite happy. But obviously, some people have their woes. Yeah. Well, I was speaking to Paul Philpot, Fresh Air Studios. Thank you. We're in their studios now. And he thinks you must have a bus that's a TARDIS to be able to find the time to do all these NED roles. No, I've got great people who look after me. I'm going to give a shout out to Helen and Philippa, who are my PAs. And I've got to be honest, I am a living nightmare to work with. But they managed to pull it all together. They keep me on the straight and narrow. And as long as I just follow my phone and go from place to place to place and don't dabble with the diary, then I'm okay. But yeah, time travel would be nice. I'm sort of time traveling with a bus because the very first bus I drove in service 31 years ago now, I own. And so I'm hoping that I'll be able to drive my last day of my career in the same bus that I drove my first day of my career. The very same bus? What is it? It's a Bristol LHS, and it was, at the time, I started my bus driving career in Penzance, end of 1989, and this bus was employed on 
Mausel, and it was in the livery of a company called Harvey's of Mausel. So it's a blue bus. And I basically followed that vehicle for several years. And then I was doing a bus rally, so I really am a geek. A few years ago, uh, back 2014, I think, the gentleman who owned it was there. And I went up to him and I said, oh, that's my bus. And he goes, no, it's my bus. And I said, well, I know it's your bus, but this is the first bus that I ever drove yeah. in service. So I went out with him and he said, would you like to you know, have a drive for old time's sake? And I said, oh, yeah, that'd be lovely. And I drove it and he got quite indignant because I was able to drive it better and easier than he could. At the end of it, I said to him, look, you know, if you ever want to sell it, give me a shout. And he said, oh, I won't. My grandkids would never forgive me. And I said, well, if you ever do. Anyway, yeah. long story short, he rang me and said, would I like to buy it? And I did. And the guys up at City Bus have rebuilt it. It's in better condition now than when it rolled out of the factory. <laughs> It's great. Yeah, lovely. And I recall you like your toys in the sense that you sail. You had a boat? I do. As my grandchildren have got more expensive, so my boats have got smaller. So I'm now in ownership of a kayak. But I've been sailing my whole life since school days when I helped build a miracle dinghy. And, you know, I love it. I'm still a member of Topsham Sailing Club now, where I was honoured to be the Commodore for a period of time. But I love sailing in Plymouth as well. It's just beautiful waterfront. Last weekend, I was out floating around Bigbury Island on my kayak. So you can't yeah. complain, can you? And are you a Plymouth boy? I don't know. No, I'm not. I describe myself as a West Country boy. I was born in Biddeford in North Devon, but I never really lived there. My dad worked for Barclays Bank and got moved around from place to place. Mm. And so the longest period of time I've ever lived anywhere was St Ives in Cornwall. But in my life, I lived in Torrington and Exmouth and Honiton and Bridgewater as well so I've certainly been around a bit. You obviously love the southwest you're not going to move anywhere now I guess. No I mean I plan to stay here and work here I mean one of the fabulous things is you know I came to Plymouth in 2012 and then I moved to Plymouth in 2015 and I've never looked back to be honest. I think this is the most amazing place to be most amazing place to live and I'm very very happy here and it's accessibility. People talk about, oh, it's a long way away. I don't think it is. I think it's really, really close to everything I personally value. You know, Dartmoor's 10 minutes, Cornwall's 10 minutes, Devon's 10 minutes, the sea is 10 minutes. Yeah. What else do you want in life? I think it has it all. I suppose it's not far from anywhere for a guy who's driven a bus to Romania, mind. <laughs> Absolutely. <Yeah. laughs> a couple of hours up the road is nothing after you've done that. It isn't really. I mean, when you've driven as many miles as I have, you appreciate being quite stationary. Yeah. I was lucky enough to drive a VW Beetle from Plymouth to the Gambia as part of a banger rally and that was an amazing adventure and I've still got that drive to do another mad adventure there's talk about motorcycling around Iceland and all sorts of things still to come Alexis Bowater of Bowater Communications I suddenly realised that we had this unbelievable opportunity to have my committee congratulated by two Prime Ministers <laughs> Follow the Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce on Twitter at Chamber underscore Devon and search for us on LinkedIn. Make sure you don't miss out on future episodes. Hit subscribe now. Have you got adventures in you? Is there anything you want to do? Oh, I want to spend as much time with the people I love as I possibly can cram into my life. I'd like to travel in due course. I do like visiting other places, but I don't exactly have the wanderlust, even though that my whole business revolves around getting people to their destination. <laughs> Although I am destination focused, I really like to appreciate the journey. Yeah, well, it's all about the journey, isn't it? As they say, you never reach the destination in some ways. You do hopefully in bus company world, but I mean, as an individual, you know, you say, oh, if I could just get that, I'd be happier if I could just reach that point. But actually, it's what's happening to you on the way. You've recently become a 
Deputy Lieutenant. Do you get a sword? <laughs> I think there is one on offer. Yeah, pretty fabulous. At the moment, I have a very nice insignia. I call myself the YTS of the Deputy Lieutenants because, you know, I feel so humbled to be in the role. It's just incredible. I never in my wildest dreams was this ever in my story. And now I just really want to make sure I do a good job and play my part and live up to what I think is a really huge, big honour. What is the job? For those who don't know, what does a Deputy Lieutenant do? In essence, the Lord Lieutenant represents the Queen in Devon and the Deputy Lieutenants support the Lord Lieutenant in that work. It's about supporting businesses and organisations. It's about keeping the Crown informed. It's about helping with honours and things like that for people. It's about helping organise royal visits. It's about finding worthy people and worthy organisations to celebrate in the county. It's promoting the Queen's Enterprise Awards and anything else that we're called on to do, really. Well, it sounds like you're eminently suitable for the job because you're connected across the business world. You see all these fantastic organisations and, as you say, some very worthy organisations. My first time of coming across a deputy lieutenant was when St Luke's Hospice was granted a Queen's Award themselves and that was the Queen's Award for Voluntary Service, which was a fantastic honour. And I saw then the work that they did when they came to inspect us. I recall the deputy lieutenant meeting a young lady who was over, I think, from Nigeria and doing some voluntary work. And she was so upset that one of the patients was having a birthday, but because he didn't have family, didn't have a birthday card, walked to the nearest shop, which was a mile or two away and back and hand wrote a card. She was telling the deputy lieutenant this story. And as I saw a tear roll down his eye, I thought, well, if we don't get the Queen's Award after that, you know, because the work being done there was just incredible, just incredible. It's a privilege to do it, isn't it? It is. As I say, it's a huge honour. And I'm in such amazing company with the other deputy lieutenants that, yeah, I couldn't be happier with it, really. You do it for a long time, so I've got to do a good job for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. And you see all these wonderful things that are happening in the region, and clearly you're passionate about the region. But if there's something you could change about Devon, what would it be? It's not something I'd change about Devon. If I had a magic wand, what I'd want to wave is people's feeling of worth, of valuing themselves. I mean, one of the things that I feel most passionate about is leveraging great opportunities for young people. And I mean, I left school with no qualifications to speak of, and it wasn't a smooth path from bus driver to managing director. And I think that education needs to evolve. I think that family structures are under pressure everywhere we look. And I think that's what I'd like to change about Devon. I'd like no child to be in poverty. I'd like everybody to have an education that's tailored to their style of learning. I'd like nobody to feel excluded. I mean, it's all about respect and inclusion for me. If I had my magic wand, that's what I'd be waving. Mm. Well, you sort of answered my next question, which is really what you want your legacy to be. So I guess, you know, hopefully it's a long way away and you don't strike me as the sort of guy who's ever going to actually retire. But if you did and you wanted to look back and say, the one thing I achieved I'm really proud of, what would that be? I aim to sort of leave things better than I found them. If I can leave a positive mark or a positive influence on something, and that's my legacy, then I'll be really pleased. I'd be so devastated to be wherever the afterlife is and sort of be aware of the fact that people were going, oh, thank goodness for that. I don't think that'll be the case. Well, I don't know. I mean, I'm a bit of a nightmare for people who chair the boards that I'm sat on. And, you know, I was talking to Carl Tucker, who's the chair of the Heart of the Southwest Lep yesterday, and I was really just expressing my gratitude for his tolerance with me because, 
you know, I don't know when to shut up, really. So I think one of the reasons maybe I'm chair of quite a few things is because it's the easiest way to shut me up because I have to make sure that I give everybody <laughs> else a voice. Well, no, I think you add a lot of value. I have met people in my business career who say they're on a lot of boards and you're aware it's actually about them and what kudos that brings them and their sort of ego. Whereas with you, I see you genuinely want to join it up. You want to make sure it all works, don't you? You want to be making sure that we're all connected and doing the best we can. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I personally don't think I have an ego. Somebody else may have a different view. But what drives me is the joy of seeing people achieve goals, about seeing the power of collaboration, about watching problems get resolved or positive outcomes being achieved just through the energy of people. I think that what human beings can achieve when they work together is nothing short of startling and miraculous. And people talk about miracles, or maybe they don't talk about miracles, but in my mind, I think I get to witness them practically every day of my life in the eyes and the hearts and the minds of the people that I am so fortunate to work with. I agree. I've been saying, um, speaking to other people in our In Conversation With series, that I think it's a real privilege to do my job because I meet all these incredible businesses, these people who've thrown everything at starting a business, running it, making it successful. That's an incredible privilege. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's something I've never done. I've always made money for other people. I've never actually run my own business or earned off of my own investment as such. And I'm fascinated by how people generate their enterprise and the effort and the energy that they put into it. One of my fascinations when I'm talking to people is just understanding how their business model works or how they make their money. Because I look at things and I think, how on earth do you make money out of that? It's just not <laughs> obvious. And it's so interesting. And business is a great, I was going to say leveller, and maybe that word's not doing it justice, but lots of people have roles in life, whether it be political roles or policing or nursing or things like that. But a lot of roles in society are quite divisive. And the thing about business, if it acts as a good community partner, it isn't divisive, it's inclusive because fundamentally you want the people around you whether they work for you or the people that you're trying to sell to everybody's working to a common aim if it's done well and I think that that's one of the joys of it I think it also speaks to one of the challenges that we're going to face going forward now is that I've got nothing against some of the large web-based organizations that are sort of providing service you know parcel deliveries and things like this but how do we make them local how do we keep them local and how do we stop ourselves becoming faceless you know i think that's going to be an interesting challenge for all businesses how do you engage with both your workforce and your customers in this new post-covid world i think it's going to be a challenge yeah i think we're all going to value community more but it's what that community is because we've had to learn to live in an online community and our communities aren't like they used to be a village around a shop and a church and a pub. It's a different, more interconnected set of communities. But you're right, it's how we keep it local and make sure we're proud of what's local. Is there anyone you really admire in business? Someone you'd put up as a hero, someone you've learned from? I find that quite a hard question to answer and that's not because I haven't experienced good in my life or I haven't witnessed good in my life. It's because I see the wonder in everyone that I meet and I see the value in everyone that I meet so it's really hard to sort of pick somebody up over another I mean I've watched people going out we're lucky enough to take part in the soup run in the city as a company and I've been out on lots of occasions and you watch people giving what is a lot to them both time and energy in the freezing cold to feed somebody who's homeless and I think that's remarkable it's awe-inspiring when you see somebody engaging with somebody that is in such a vulnerable situation 
And then likewise, Barack Obama, I thought, was an amazing yeah, president. And, you know, but in terms of admire them, I think I put them on a par in that mm. example. So I don't know that I am particularly in awe of any one person or have a hero because I just think all people are heroes. Well, what a lovely attitude to have and a good way to wrap this up, I suppose. But actually, if there's one thing that COVID has shown us is that the people we thought were important in life aren't necessarily as important as we thought they were. And other people who you perhaps took for granted in life, like the guy that drives your Tesco delivery truck, suddenly you realise it's pretty important or you don't eat. Yeah, I hear what you say. I think this planet would be an awful lot of an easier place to live if more people actually loved and respected each other. And I think what I'm hoping to see, the legacy I want for my grandchildren is one of respect and inclusion. And I hope that the generations that are following us are actually more inclusive than some of the generations that have gone before. And that's not to say I'm not proud of the world we live in today and the work that we do, but I think we can all accept the fact that we can do better and put more effort into it and see where that takes us. Oh, I agree. I heard recently someone say that the best athletes, the best sports people, are not in competition with the other people. They're in competition with themselves just to be that little bit better every day. Richard, it's been an absolute joy speaking to you. Thank you so much for giving up your time, because as we've heard, you've got a few things on in your life, but really appreciate it. And on behalf of the Plymouth business community, thanks for all you're doing, because you do more than you would admit to keep us all in check and do the best for the city that we possibly can. Thanks for joining us. No, you're welcome. You're doing a great job, and I think the Chamber has so much value to this community adds so much value both in Plymouth and across Devon and it's been a joy to see it grow year on year and I'm just delighted to be part of it thank you very much and now Chambermaid introducing business owners from across the southwest Hello there, I'm Stuart Elford, Chief Executive of Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce, and welcome to another edition of In Conversation With, the Chamber podcast. The first part of our show is called Chamber Chat, and I interview well-known celebrities from around the region, and today I'm delighted to say, I say delighted, I'll tell you why in a minute, to be interviewing Alexis Bowater. Hello, Alexis. Hello, Stuart. Thank you very much for inviting me. I'm surprised. <laughs> why are you surprised I've invited you? I don't know. No. <laughs> so why I'd say, I'll tell you why in a minute, is because firstly, she's been very naughty and trying to make me laugh before I did my intro and secondly I don't like to interview someone who's better at interviewing than I am which is really 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 worrying but then that's most people I suppose because I'm not a professional no no you're very good at this yeah 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 what do you want you want something (laughs) we were talking before we started recording about our voices and doing voiceover work for Paul Philpott who hasn't taken the hint that either of us could do with that voiceover work and I was putting on my best BBC voice (laughs) and you were saying that it was rubbish basically No, I was just saying, don't be something that you're not. not so if you're yeah. ever going to be anything, just be authentic. Authentic. So, and this is my best ITV voice. Is it? Mm? Did you ever... I'm, so I'm going completely off my script now. I've got <laughs> questions and I'm not going to ask away. them. Throw the script away. <laughs> Did you ever have some times where you fluffed your lines completely on camera or said something really dodgy or kind of lost the plot while you were doing it? Oh, yeah, loads of times. But there are two words that I always have to think really hard about yes. before I say them. And you're going to laugh at this. No, no, please good. contain yourself. So I have to think hard about hospital. Hospital. Yes. Not hospital. 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 Yes. And nuclear. Nuclear. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I had a colleague once who had something happen to them, which I'm very glad that 
didn't happen to me. Mm-hmm. So live on the auto cue, it was rewritten in front of him, and up popped evangelical ventriloquists. <laughs> evangelical ventriloquists, that's fantastic. <laughs> Probably my first podcast interview, I interviewed Fitz, and he's the master of that, isn't he? He's mm. just absolutely brilliant at those long, unpronounceable names and what have you. Mm. Yes. I think if you're from Devon, though, it makes it a little bit easier being down here in the West Country, if you're working down in the West Country, because you've grown up with these names. Oh, I see. And I do remember there was newsroom frustration sometimes when national journalists were trying to cover local stories. Mm. And I remember considerable consternation one day and lots of people shouting at televisions when somebody repeatedly was talking about a story happening in Fowey in Cornwall. Fowey, yes. Launceston <laughs> is the other one. There's always stories in Launceston, which was my first nick as a police officer. And I think that's probably when I first met you, not in Launceston, but in when jail. you were yeah, in jail. That's another story, but which you're not going to tell on the podcast. But I remember waking up and saying, oh no, not again. But no, so you and I met, I think you were ITV West Country at the time. Mm. Would you have been anchor or? No, I think, I'm not sure we might have met before then, actually, when I was on the Express and Echo in Exeter. Right. So I was seeing lots and lots of crime stories there. I was in the magistrate's court every single morning, okay. not in the dock. But, well, I was going to say, yeah. what have you done this time? <laughs> Well, it was lovely. I really enjoyed crime reporting, actually, because in those days you had plea and directions. And so you had some idea of what was going to happen with the case in the magistrate's court. And I used to go and see the police and CID almost every morning up in Heavy Tree Road, which mm. was brilliant. But yeah, I went out of there into the newsroom of West Country. Initially, I was just on news desk, didn't really know what I was going to do. And then I became a reporter. Then I was North Devon reporter for a year, then early mornings, late nights, and then I was anchor. Mm. I never, ever thought I was going to be on television. I didn't really aspire to that. What I wanted to be was just a good reporter. So was it always journalism? Did you do a journalism degree? Did you leave school down that route or have you done No, it was even more peculiar than that because I think things have changed. Nothing's normal with you, Alexis. Go on, tell us. (laughs) Well, I think things have changed in our lifetimes more than we recognise in lots of ways, possibly because we don't want to admit how old we are. I'm 33 Um, and you know it. I've always been so proud to have been so much older than you, Stuart. I am the wise woman. So no, it was a little bit more complicated than that and probably more inspirational than I know that when I admitted aged 15 to my careers advisor at school that I wanted to be a journalist, which I'd wanted to be since I was Mm. eight, he said, what do you mean? Do you mean writing articles for women's magazines? And I said, no. I want to be a journalist in a newspaper newsroom. Mm. And he said, you can't do that. It's a boy's job. Oh, my word. (laughs) So that was a very peculiar response. But it was at a time where you may recall, and I definitely recall, there was a lot of conversation in the media about equality and you know, we had songs which people won't believe were happening in our lifetime about women coming out of the kitchen because there's something we forgot to say to you. Yes, I remember You that. know, sisters are doing it for themselves. It's not a 1960s song. It's not a 1950s song. It's a 1980s song. I know, it's incredible, isn't it? Yes, it is incredible. So that aspiration was slightly quashed. Was it? Because you strike me as the sort of person, if I tell you you can't do something, oh boy, you're just going to do it, aren't you? Well, I was kind of up against a insurmountable obstacle at the end of that conversation because I was... A girl. Are you? (laughs) 
You're a girl. I you know. didn't tell me this. I'm sorry, Stuart. Oh, I know. We'll come on to other things you've done in your life that make me think you wouldn't have taken that very well. You strike me as the sort of person uh, who would want that sort of equality and that sense yeah. of chance and opportunity. So what happened then? I don't really think I realised what was going on. It was peculiar. I was bamboozled. In retrospect, I think I was discombobulated. I wasn't in a position to respond in an intellectual way. So I just carried on mm. with what I was doing. And always with this hope that maybe one day I would be good enough to be a journalist. So I travelled the world and I went to university, Newcastle, first university degree, and then travelled the world and then went and did a master's degree in at what? Bristol University. It was in international politics, economics and social policy. Wow. So if you want to have an interesting conversation along those lines, Stuart, we can go there Is anytime you like. <laughs> Is it possible to have an interesting conversation about international politics? Anyway, sorry, go on. Anyway, so I think at that point I thought I'm definitely bright enough to be a boy. Do you see? Because <laughs> I've got a master's degree. And I had completed it six weeks early, so I still had funding. And the practicalities of it was that I had space to do something. So I secretly wrote letters to the news editors of every single newspaper in the United Kingdom with a circulation of over 30,000. I had so many rejection letters, I can't Mm. even tell you. I don't even remember how many. Mm. But I had two letters encouraging me. And I had one letter from the managing director of Northcliffe newspapers saying, I don't hold out any hope for you whatsoever. But if you happen to be in London, do nip in for a cup of tea. Right. I was in London the next day. Yeah, and then it happened. And I phoned him from a phone box around Mm. the corner from his office. I was so lucky, I ended up getting what they call a sort of indenture. It's like a traineeship Mm. for Northcliffe newspapers. And, you know, Northcliffe, their training is gold standard, it really Mm. is. And it meant I didn't have to go back to university again. Yeah, they parachuted me into the Express and Echo, which had a female editor. Were you from the West Country then? Yeah, so I'm proper Devon, made made in Devon. Yeah, so I can say proper. (laughs) Yep. And it was wonderful. I mean, I had amazing mentors on my news desk. You'll know these people. Mm. They're people like Mark Astley, who Mm. now runs Astley Media in Exeter. Mm. And of course, Bill Martin. Mm. He was on the news desk. So it's all their fault. Who I've interviewed for a podcast. Exactly. It's their fault. Yeah, it's all their fault. They trained me. Had I known, I could have blamed him. I read your bio and it talks about you being an award-winning Northcliffe-trained journalist and you've Mm. done the TV stuff. You've won seven RTS awards for Best Programme for ITV West Country News and the ITV's National Silver Award for coverage of the Boscastle disaster, oh, yeah. where I was community constable, actually, for a short time. <laughs> now, that might make you sound, forgive the expression, like a bit of a media lover. You've done all the media lovey stuff, but you've done some pretty serious stuff as well. And one of those came out of being in the media was the work around stalking. Yeah. So can you tell us, if it's not personal or impolite, what happened and what led you down that path? Oh, you're so nice, asking in such a nice way. Yeah, so the media lovey thing, I think, is... Mythical. Rude, sorry. <laughs> no, no, it's not it's not rude. I mean I still have people judging me for the way I look, mm. people saying things, Oh, she's so glamorous, all this kind of stuff. In quite a pejorative way and quite a painful way. It hurts, it's not mm. very nice. Because the bottom line is I'm just a journalist. I'm a reporter and I'm really interested in people and I'm interested in campaigning and I'm interested in human rights. And that's always Mm. been my driving force. You know, I've sort of latterly recognised it because you look back on patterns and you Mm. think I keep on doing things that are involved with human rights and Mm. campaigning. So when I was on newspapers and television, I was stalked Mm. a lot. 
In fact, I was stalked over a period of 15 years by three different people. Three different people. Um, so one of them was on the Inspiration Echo. Nothing could be done. It was before the 1997 Protection from Harassment Act. You know, you and I have been around long enough to know that there hasn't been legislation protecting yeah. people, particularly women, from lots of things in our lifetimes. You know, people mm-hmm. will be shocked to hear that the Rape in Marriage Act only came in, what was it, 1997, around mm-hmm. about that time? Mm-hmm. So things have changed radically. So I was stalked before the 1997 Protection from Harassment Act. That was awful. It it was shocking and it was only the work of a really outstanding police officer that stopped it. He did not have legal redress. He only had his own talent, experience and expertise mm. in order to stop that behaviour, for which I'm very, very grateful. The second one, it was frightening. It's difficult to talk about that one because of various legal reasons. But the third time I was stalked, it was during both of my pregnancies and it was pure cyber stalking. And because I'd had this experience of stalking previously, immediately it started, I knew we were in it. And so we were liaising almost instantaneously with CID straight Mm. through. And everyone recognised we were in a stalking situation. And of course it escalated and was as grim. And, uh, you know, I couldn't have been more vulnerable, really. Mm. And then they didn't catch him. And I went on maternity leave for a year and came back. And once I was visibly pregnant again on television, it started again. And of course, what stalkers do is that they don't go backwards in their stalking behaviours. They start again where they stopped and then they escalate. So by the time my daughter was born, you know, the threats were off the wall. And Devon and Cornwall Police, the guy in charge of my case, was brilliant. But we had got to a point where the police, they weren't left with very much to go with because we'd run out of things to protect me with. Mm. So I had been given a home office approved alarm. I remember them well. Yep. They're not many given out, are they? I mean, I think there are only about 28 given out. I don't know, very few, but they have to be signed off by the home office. So that's some level of understanding of the threat. I had drive-bys by the police three times a day. I had police visiting me, monitoring me. I had links to Middlemore so that if the phone or electricity to my house was cut, then all the blues and twos from five miles away would come. Mm. And we were at the stage where the police had said we were having sensible discussions about um, installing a panic room in my house like you see in the movies. Mm. So we were in it. It's awful, isn't it? Yeah. So what happened next? Yeah, I don't so, mean personally yeah, to you, no, but I mean no, no. your journey next? around So Yeah, so stalking. that was interesting. So I think I'd normalised it, all stalking victims do. My daughter was born. They caught him quite quickly after that. And then he was eventually sent to prison. He was sent down for four years and one month for pure cyberstalking, which I think was the longest sentence handed out at the time in the United Kingdom for pure cyberstalking. So it's some indication of how serious it was. Mm. You can look it up online, it's not nice. Mm. So I was approached by a national charity who said, we would really love you to help us out. We need a new chief executive Mm. and we think that you could help us with our mission, which is to raise awareness about stalking and create more support services for victims and change the law on a budget of zero pounds and zero pence. Mm. I went, oh, right. (laughs) That sounds like most charities, to be fair. (laughs) We want you to change the world, but we haven't got any money. I said, well, I can't give you much. I said, but I can give you my skills. Mm. And so I started working with a loosely connected team of people from charities to Crown Prosecution Service, Association of Chief Police Officers, Ministry of Justice. And when I say we were loosely connected, we were loosely connected in that we were all coming from different directions, but we all had one goal. 
and that was to change things for the better and what I could bring was my skills as a journalist so you know everything that they were doing I could broadcast to the biggest possible audience Mm. and hope that people would understand what we were trying to say and to dovetail into that with us. And this brought about a change in the law. And in November 2012, the new stalking laws were introduced, but also simultaneously side by side with that, I was encouraged by a guy called Nazir Afsal, who was the head of the Crown Prosecution Service in London at the time. You'll know him because Mm. he's famous for busting the Rochdale gangs. Mm. And he was really wonderful. I had so many mentors, but he in particular shoveled me off in the direction of Europe and said, try and get anti-stalking legislation and support services for victims into the Istanbul Convention, which Mm. was across all 47 member states of the Council of Europe. Mm-hmm. So that was a bit hairy and I had to give some serious speeches to the Council of Europe and you've seen those rooms with the banks of translators <laughs> and, you know, the horseshoe and the press the button mm. and all that kind of stuff. And we managed to get anti-stalking legislation and support services for victims into the Istanbul Convention. So Wonderful. that protects women and girls from violence across 47 member states of the Council Wonderful. of Europe. It took some persuading. Yeah, I bet it did. Especially with certain states, which are perhaps not as enlightened as others. Yeah. Well, I met somebody weirdly the other day during lockdown, and she had sort of been on the other side. And Mm. she said that she was there when they were voting through the Mm. legislation and whether stalking legislation should be introduced. And there was one guy, he was sticky, Mm. just one guy. And then somebody just went, he says, we. Yeah. So... (laughs) Not that we're giving away which country that was from in any way, shape or form. But there As that work around the stalking and, you know, well done on all that fantastic work. I can remember as a young police officer feeling fairly powerless sometimes to deal with that sort of stuff. Yeah. So what you've done is wonderful. But has that led on to you being um, a feminist? I mean, I know you run the Southwest Women in Business group. Are you a campaigning feminist? I think I've always, you know, believed in equality. I think that a level playing field is the only way for everybody. I think everyone agrees with that in general terms. But I think it's important to accept that the playing field that we're on at the moment is still a bit bumpy, Mm. especially when it comes to violence against women and girls. I think if you look at the statistics, then they will show the backdrop to the theatre of the lives of women all over the United Kingdom. Mm. You know, you jot this down and be a mathematician for me, but one in five women will be stalked at some point in their lives. One in four women will be subjected to some form of sexual assault Mm. or rape. One in four women will be subjected to some form of domestic violence. Ten women a week are committing suicide because of said domestic violence. Half of the women who are questioned about sexual harassment in the workplace say that they've been sexually harassed in the workplace. And up until the first lockdown, two women a week were being murdered by their partners or ex-partners in this country. Mm -hmm. So if you look at those statistics, they are gender skewed and they shame us all. Mm, And they need to be addressed and they need to be wrestled with Mm. by all of us Mm. because if these are statistics that are affecting 51 percent of our population Mm. that it means that quite a lot of women that you know or love or have loved or will love have been, are, or will be in very, very serious trouble simply because of their gender. Yes, I've had, I won't say how many, but more than I care to think about female friends tell me about experiences they've had and at least two of them have been raped. And that, I just found it awful and shocking and upsetting. I mean, it's the most horrendous thing to do. So before we move on to less serious subjects, (laughs) what can we do? 
I think people need to talk about it openly and honestly. And I think more men need to talk about it. People need to talk about what's frightening them and why they're frightened. Mm. It's not just about women being frightened of men. It's about men being frightened of women. It's about why people feel that they cannot have communication without confrontation. Mm. I've had conversations with you where you've completely concurred with me that there is a big, big problem here. Mm. But I think that the way to solve it is to be open and honest and have, as I say, conversation, not confrontation. Mm. And the power of people is much, much more important than getting stuck in that sticky swamp of blame and shame. Mm. Where nobody wins. No, nobody wins. I always think, you know, when you see these big trials, by the time it's got to court and somebody's convicted, you know, sometimes people say, oh, there's no justice or the right justice wasn't done. And I think by that stage, there are no winners. Yeah. You know, we should never have got to that stage in the first place. You know, that is the very, very end of the whole story, yeah. isn't it? Mm. But I think as well, somehow we seem to have sort of slipped into the philosophy of opening analysis by saying who do you blame mm, absolutely blame culture yeah and the answer to that is nobody and have you actually got enough time for me to explain why i feel that mm. because i think as well Stuart, we are in a situation in 2021 where somehow we've all been encouraged to play cowboys and indians mm. and goodies and baddies yeah. and all goodies and baddies think they're goodies even the baddies think they're goodies. Yes. And if we follow this narrative, whether it's in life or society or politics or personal relationships, where in order to be the hero of our own narrative, we have to find a villain, then we're always going to be stuck in that goodies mm. and baddies and cowboys and Indians, mm. pugilistic, gladiatorial scenario, the blame mm. and shame swamp. Well, actually, nobody's a winner. You don't mm. get anywhere. And there's no resolution. There's no learning. You don't solve a problem. You just try and find someone to blame for the problem, mm. which doesn't remove the problem. Mm. It just makes somebody feel dreadful about it. And therefore, they start fighting and then you're suddenly in some diabolical warfare. And it's just not very helpful. No, we are in a black and white, left and right, polar opposite, you and me type of society. Yeah, yeah. There are no shades of grey. It's all black and white. Yeah. And that I really, really hate. I I can't pronounce his name, but there's a Russian guy called, I think, Sovorov or something, who said that he's less concerned about good and evil than he is about those who proclaim to know where good and evil can be found. And I think that's absolutely right, because everything's a shade of grey. Marcus Aurelius, there is no truth, there's any perspective. And it depends where you're looking at it, but we're not prepared to accept that another person is looking at it from a different viewpoint. Yeah, and that the two things can be true at the same time. Mm. It revolutionises your life if yeah. you recognise that. And also to recognise that all the people around you have, you know, to misquote... <laughs> Dr. Seuss. They've got brains in their head and they've got feet in their shoes and they can go any direction they choose. Mm. So if I want to, you know, rapidly expand my life or my philosophy or, you know, my learning, then I need to borrow your brain, thank you very much, Stuart, because mm. I need to see all the things that <laughs> you've learned. Do you there's know not much I mean? left in there. I know. Well, I'll just take the good bits. <laughs> I'm pleased that I've managed to quote Marcus Aurelius, which... <laughs> and um, I've gone for Dr. Seuss. You've gone for Dr. Seuss. <laughs> if you'd like to feature on a future episode of In Conversation With, send an email to info at freshairstudios.com. So moving on to things that are yeah. a little more cheery, but God, uh, no less important. you've got such a naughty look on your face. I can see you're looking to the left thinking, what am I going to bring up? What no, gonna... it's not. It's, it's no, I'm, I'm thinking about I'm the, the Nancy Amsterdam statue. I was oh, going okay. from there to... Just celebrating the Nancy Astor statue. I mean, you did an amazing job. Scared. You led a campaign. 
skip through the hard bit. You've got £140,000 together. You've got worldwide coverage for it. And there we are. We get the statue of the first female MP to sit in the House of Commons, unveiled on Plymouth Hoe in November 2019, uh, 100 years after her victory. And you got it unveiled by the only living UK female prime minister, Theresa May. Yeah. Because that's easy. How did you go about that then? Well, I have to really massively give credit to the people who surrounded me at the time and the fact that I had responsibility for this project. We had a hard deadline. We couldn't miss it. Plymouth was going to look really daft if suddenly there was no statue there. (laughs) Yes. A hundred years after the city had pulled off the most remarkable democratic pivot in Mm. history. So I had a committee of the most outstanding women I had ever met. Now, one of the things about you knew this about leadership and one of the things about projects is that if you end up the leader, you've got to be really, really honest with yourself and know in your heart where the gaps are. And you've got to make a list of your needs. And I needed a solicitor and I needed an accountant and I needed some sensible heads. I needed people who believed in me and I needed people who were going to jump on this bandwagon and bet the house. Not bet the house, bet the city. We bet the city. And it was an all or nothing. It was a death or glory. If we hadn't pulled it off, I don't even want to think about the embarrassment that there would have been. It's a magnificent achievement and more than people probably think, because in fact, I read that there are more statues of men called John in the UK than there are statues of women. That is shocking. Isn't it? That's a big mountain to climb there. Yeah, so I think at the time, I think the statistics was something along the lines that there are more than 900 monuments or statues in the United Kingdom and only 29 of them before Nancy were of non-royal, non-mythical women. So you were more likely to have a statue made of you if you were a nymph or a mermaid than if you were the first woman to take your seat on the green benches in the Houses of Parliament. So we didn't think that was right. No. <laughs> we uh, thought it was a good a idea scale. to change it. It was wrong on a massive scale. But the more you dug into it, the more silly it was. But also the more it was such a golden opportunity. Mm. You know, it's not just the first statue of the first woman in Parliament in Plymouth. It was celebrating what the people of this city pulled off. And it was an absolute miracle. Nobody else had done it. It wasn't the Geordies. It wasn't the Mancunians. It wasn't the Cockneys. It was the Janners. The Janners did it. And everyone was like, even when I was, this is quite annoying as well, even when I was doing some interviews up in London, and this is what happened 100 years ago, people were like, oh, yeah, yeah, you're from Portsmouth, aren't you? I'm like, (laughs) oh, don't get me started on that. Yes, yes. Did you hear my little growl? Yeah, there was a little, yeah, it was quite scary, actually. Um, (laughs) That wasn't a snow leopard coming into the studio. That was actually me. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing achievement. It's great. I'm really glad you did it. We as a chamber supported it because we thought yeah, you were great. it was a recognition of something that major historical yeah. shift that happened in Plymouth. I have been asked, I'm going to not gloss over this, but mm. cover it very briefly. Why did we support a lady who had allegedly got anti-Semitic tendencies? Mm. And I said, we're not saying that everything about Nancy Astor was fantastic, mm. whether it was or wasn't. That's not the point. Know, not the, it, point. It, it, the point was we are recognising a moment in history where the mm. first female took her seat in mm. Parliament. Mm. I'm always surprised mm. when people seem shocked that a human being, especially in history, is mm. less than perfect by our standards. And I'm not judging whether she was she wasn't but Mm. even now Mm. you get brands that put their whole Mm. brand reputation behind one person Mm. and shock horror they have an affair 
or they, they get drunk or they do something silly yeah, and I it mean, all comes crashing down. Yeah, I think you put your finger on it. The project was not really about politics. It was about women, mm. but it was about Plymouth as well. You know, this city had the vision to change the world. Mm. Also, I think people forget that we were working with five professors of history mm. who know their stuff. Mm. The interesting thing about what was happening was that lots of people were saying that 100 years on, the misogyny and the noise that had happened when Nancy was elected was being recreated. Yeah. One of the professors is, I wish she was here today because she'd be quietly exploding in the corner because the hard fact about Nancy was that she was one of the first people to call out the Nazis on the way that they treated women. Mm. She held in this city mm. a massive rally in 1933, way before anybody else. Mm. And also, you know, there is no evidence at all that she was anti-Semitic. She was really good friends with Jewish people, the other Jewish MP here in the city of Plymouth. And also she helped to get Jewish people out of Berlin. Mm. She was also up against a horrendous amount of what we would call trolling. Mm. And as you say, misogyny. Talk about brave lady. Walking into that parliament must have been an interesting experience. Well, I think on the day that she walked in, there were more than 620 largely hostile men who were shouting at her as she walked into the House of Commons. And they threw torn up pieces of paper at her when she went to take her rightful seat on those green benches. Mm. And also they wouldn't move their knees to let her sit down and she was a tiny little thing she was five foot two so just imagine how intimidating that would have been mm. she was a rubbish politician in lots of ways Stuart because she never did what she was told <laughs> in my mind that would make a good politician because <laughs> there's a lot of towing the party line oh, which no, drives her own me nuts. party absolutely mm. hated her they tried to get her out you know she always said they would have rather have had a rattlesnake in there than me mm. Churchill famously absolutely despised her wouldn't talk to her for the first two years she was in her job. Was she the arsenic in your tea yeah, comment? Yeah, yeah, yeah. coffee. Yeah, yeah. If you were my husband, I'd put arsenic yeah, in your coffee yeah, and he replied, yeah, if you were my I'll wife, I'd drink it. Yeah, yes. yeah, so he really, really yeah. didn't like her. And, and so I think it was really interesting seeing all of this stuff regurgitated. Even when she was a candidate here, the head of the Conservative Party rolled his eyes and went, oh, no, the pity of it is the woman is going to win. Oh, the pity of it? Yeah. Oh, right. I've got to ask you about getting prime ministers to come out of the closet. Uh, come <laughs> on. Tell us what this was about. Uh, it was really great that we had so much support. Mm. And we had so much support from grassroots in Plymouth. You know, a thousand people own that statue. Mm. A thousand people. You know, from people who've given just 20p to... But in a wider way... People who had to be top secret were supporting behind the scenes. Mm. So Theresa May, she's the only living female Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. This is the only statue on the planet of the first woman in Parliament. And relatively early on, I knew that she had agreed to unveil it, but we weren't allowed to tell anyone. Of course not, as these things go. Yeah. So that was a bit of pressure. Yeah. That's because I wasn't available. Yes, obviously. <laughs> and then towards the end, everything was pretty chaotic, I have to say, because suddenly we were unexpectedly in the middle of a general election. People were flying around left, right and centre. I knew that Theresa was going to unveil it. I couldn't tell anyone. Mm. <laughs> we were running up against a really tight deadline. Don't forget, we kind of made this statue in less time than it takes to make a baby. So we only got the sculptor on Valentine's Day and we were meant to unveil it on the 28th of November. So it was mm. fast, fast, fast. A few days before, when I already had one 
Prime Minister, because she had been Prime Minister for most of the year at this mm. point, but then she just wasn't for a bit. And I got a call saying that the existing Prime Minister wanted to come as well, which was fine and brilliant, but he wasn't a woman. He's a man. <laughs> and so there was this sort of diplomatic... I mean, I had a bit of a brainstorm. I was like, yes, this is lovely, you know, to have this recognition from my committee. I was so obsessed with my committee getting recognition. I can't Mm. tell you, Stuart. They did it all for free. Mm. They pulled off a miracle. Mm. And I was like, okay, what are we going to do? So you will know this. Other people might not know this, but people were not phoning me from the same office. No, clearly. So... (laughs) one and I was getting another and I was trying to work out sort of where people could be I had to say to the prime minister no you can't unveil it somebody is unveiling it that was I was like oh and I don't think I was quite as tentative as I am now because I'm understanding the implications of what I was saying but no we had a plan and much as it was brilliant that they were going to come and be kind and enormously flattering to have that recognition for our project, Theresa May was always going to unveil that mm. at one o'clock on that day to mark one zero zero years, one o'clock, mm. one zero zero years. We had a deadline. And so instead, I suddenly realised that we had this unbelievable opportunity to congratulate my committee mm. or to have my committee congratulated by two prime ministers. <laughs> I was like, oh, the penny's dropped. And so I said, we would love you to come and would you please come and congratulate my committee. Mm. So for diplomatic reasons and security reasons and all sorts of things, it was finally agreed <laughs> that Boris Johnson would come after the statue had been unveiled and he would come and congratulate my committee. But in order to do that, he had to come out of the cupboard under the stairs. <laughs> <laughs> So he was in the closet. In Elliot Terrace. In Elliot Terrace, which was Nancy Astor's house. Yes, it was. (laughs) So Theresa May had been so great and professional Mm. and so lovely to people. And she'd been amazing with the crowds outside. And then everything was done. And the next thing from the cupboard under the stairs appeared Boris Johnson. And he congratulated my committee too. Unbelievable. So why was he in the cupboard on the stairs? It was a security thing. Oh, right. But also they didn't want him to come in round the front right. and distract. From yeah, Theresa. Yeah, what okay. was everything that was happening. And also, you know, he was in the middle of an election campaign, I guess, you know, and he had a really tight deadline. He wasn't there for very long. Right. But from our point of view, you know, to have two <laughs> prime ministers say, good on mm. you. Well deserved. I could talk to you all day, but I've got to one last question. Oh. It may be an easy one. It may be a really difficult one. I was going to ask you who are your heroes, but I guess I should say who are your heroines? Or who am I? Who is heroic to you? Is that the most politically correct way of saying it? So uh, have you got someone who's really inspired you? People who give me inspiration are mentors. Mm. People who are kind and give their time and spot people who need a bit of a leg up mm. and give that sort of peer-to-peer support, that informal mentoring. I look back at things that have happened in my life and I have had some of the most outstanding mentors that I could ever want. And they are male and female and sometimes Mm -hmm. they don't even realise they're doing it. And they can be family, they can be friends, they can be partners, but people who are generous enough in spirit to give their knowledge and kindness and experience to people who need it and are going to soak it up like a sponge, like I do always, are actually, they're not to a penny, you know. They're really not. And I look back at the last 10 years since I left 
ITV and even previous to that but I have had some absolutely outstanding mentors who've looked at me and have been kind and generous and intelligent and have given me more than they will ever know Mm. and it's a lifelong gift that they can never take away yeah they've done it now that's it they've done it now can't have it back well you know i mean hopefully a good segue is that's kind of what the chamber's about is support for each other and you know the chamber was formed the original plymouth chamber was formed 214 years ago now by a bunch of shipwrights on the barbican who said we're better off together we've got more power together yeah Uh, and here we are i said shipwrights i meant ship merchants actually they were merchants and it's developed and here we are as Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and it's still about supporting each other and helping each other out and I think that for me is what it's all about that's why I do it I love it I love supporting business I love helping people I love seeing all the exciting things going on and I think what a privilege it is to be here yeah it's interesting that you say that actually because I and Claire Baker we co-founded Southwest Women in Business which during lockdown we had to merge Taunton, Exeter, Truro, Plymouth now massive, you know, up to 3,000 people Mm. on our database across all three counties. But the three things that we absolutely know that women in business need are peer-to-peer support, informal mentoring and inspirational speakers. And when I say inspirational, it doesn't have to be people who are talking about winning all the time. It can be people sharing how things didn't go perfectly right. And I think that we're all starting to understand now that working together is much more fulfilling and successful successful than a pugilistic attitude of I'm right I'm right I'm right I'm winning I'm winning you know and climbing all on top of each other it's that gelling together that works so well the Americans are a bit ahead of us in this in that they think that chief executives they Mm. wouldn't take one on unless they've had at least one failure because they say we haven't tried hard enough I've had Um, loads (laughs) anyway I have learnt a massive amount not just in life from all my failures but from (laughs) Alexis Bowater and thank you so much Alexis really really appreciate you joining us and we'll have to have you on again because there's so much we can talk about thank you very much thank you Stuart In Conversation With is produced by Fresh Air Studios full audio production services for podcasts live links and corporate communications visit freshairstudios.com Presented by Stuart Elford. Produced and engineered by Paul Philpot. Edited and mixed by Martin Burgess Moon. Production support by Lisa Hartwell. Copyright Devon and Plymouth Chamber of Commerce and Fresh Air Studios Limited. All rights reserved.